and we need to be able to provide enough choices for all the consumers from all demographic backgrounds, from all income backgrounds. Hey everyone, today's guest is Brandy Buzzard. She is a Kansas cowgirl and rancher, a runner, and a mom. She's also an advocate. Brandy is fiercely passionate about educating and instilling confidence about where your food comes from, especially beef. I started following her after I saw one of the posts she was making to learn more about my own eating and sourcing, and it's been amazing. I've learned so, so much. I hope all of you get to learn as much as I did and check out Brandy on her own platforms, which she plugs at the end of the episode or you can find in the source notes. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast, Harley. I'm excited to be here. Um, for those listeners who don't know me, my name is Brandy Buzzard. I am a first-generation rancher. I live in southeast Kansas. My husband and I raise purebred Gelvy and Balancer cattle. Uh, we sell bulls to other livestock producers, and we've been doing that for about five years almost. Seems like a lot longer than that, but about five years. That is my second full-time job. My first full-time job is I am the director of communications for the Red Angus Association of America. So I get to work with beef producers every day. And then I am a beef producer. So my whole life is just consumed by cows and horses. And it's, it's pretty cool. I love it. Before we moved, we're now in Austin, but prior to moving here, uh, my fiance managed a cattle ranch with about 150 mamas and so 150 babies and they were all beef cattle. It was super, it was an experience. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It's, uh, it's hard to beat little baby calves. I mean, what's cute? They're so, oh, they so cute. I just want to like snuggle them, but turns out they don't really like to be snuggled. If you sneak up on them and get them like uh, acquainted or calm down or whatever you can love on them and get them going um and then uh and then they can be your friend so my daughter when she was um let's see she'll be four in a week so when she was a couple months old we had a i've always loved smoke cattle so like a cross between like something black and a charlet or something like that and we had a okay. smoke calf born on we had a smoke calf born on our ranch and i told my husband i was like this calf is never leaving here like we're not getting rid of this calf and i gave it to her as like her first christmas gift or something and to get her herd started and um but as soon as it was born like i would always i would love on it in the pasture and then if we ever had to like run them through and vaccinate them i would love on it and pet on it and um it got to where you, I, she would eat like cubes out of my hand so you may not always you may not get them to where you can walk up to them and like hug them whenever you want but you can gentle them down so where that they are that they might let you touch them every once in a while. So that's always my goal is to have, um, I'd love to have a, a big old herd that all of them will eat out of my hand. That's what my big overarching ranching goals. We had a calf whose mama died and we were, we were bottle feeding him and he would let us come up and love on him and hang out with him. He died, which was really sad. Wow. But yeah. Before that, he would let us kind of just love on him. And so when you said, you said smoke, cat like smoke are you referring to the color of them yeah it's like charcoal like smoke color that's what i mean that's what's kind of the industry slang i guess for a cross between like a black breed so an angus or like a black semi cemental or a oh, like a black galvy or something anything a black and then you cross it with a, a white breed so primarily charlet and then there's a pretty good chance that you're going to get a, a smoke colored calf so it's not black it's not white it's like gray and i've just always loved them always that's what all of ours were we had oh, almost all of yeah all the mamas were um black and then we had 
six or seven Charlet bowls and then one Hereford bowl. Mm -hmm. So we had a whole bunch of like gray and a few browns and Every once in a while we get a black calf and then we had all these like strawberry colored calves from the Hereford Bowl. Oh, yeah. You probably had some, did you have any black baldies? Yeah, we had two. So we had two mamas. So we ended up usually with one or two babies, but we actually wound up with a little mini Hereford looking one this last year. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. The baldies are super cute. It's hard to be like a little baldy calf. They're so dang cute. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you said you're a first generation rancher. How did you get interested in doing that? Were you like raised around ranches or do you have a horse background? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a first generation rancher in terms that I'm the first generation in my family that I know of to like derive a significant portion of my livelihood from cattle. But my dad and my grandpa and my dad and his dad like have cowboyed and ranched like their whole, you know, that's been part of their life. So I like I've come from ranching, but I don't come from a background where we derived our whole income from ranching. Like I don't, I would never say that I came from like a cattle ranch. We didn't have a bunch of cow calf pairs. We had some cattle for roping and we had like 4-H animals, but I wouldn't say what we had was a cattle ranch. So I didn't come from a production background, but I did grow up on what I I usually just called a hobby ranch because we had horses and rodeoed and had some rope and cattle and 4-H animals and stuff like that. So first generation, like full-time rancher, not the first person in my family to be a rancher, I guess. That probably muddied it a lot, but... No, that's a a very interesting distinction. So you mentioned that you rodeoed. I noticed you online... Um, said you were a breakaway roper? Yeah, I still rodeo as much as I possibly can. Breakaway roping is my primary event. I do when I have a horse that I would like to run barrels on, I run barrels, but um, I sold my barrel horse a couple years, my most recent one a couple years ago. And so now I just rope and I love it. And if I could just only rope and ranch, you know, that's, that is my dream goal is to just one day stay home and have all the, and be the, the head rancher and rodeo whenever I can. And that's pretty well known. My coworkers, fellow employees, and my employer know that, that that the ultimate goal is to, to in like 10 years, be a full-time rancher. So anyway, yeah, just to keep rodeoing and, and having cattle, that's the, that's the goal. We want to, I want horses, but I'm not a big, I'm not really big into riding. I just, that's it's so silly. I'm like, I just want them to hang out with them. I don't have any interest in actually writing them. It's really silly. It's not silly. They're just, um, that's not silly. They're just nice to have around and they're friendly. And, and unlike a cow, you can like walk right up to them and love on them. Whereas you have to do some tricking to walk right up on your horse and <laughs> to walk right up on a cow and do it. But horses, you can absolutely do that. We kind of compromised a little bit and I, unfortunately I had to rehome them, but I had, we had ducks for a couple months before we moved. Oh, I, I have zero experience with ducks. That is a new one. Do you have chickens? I do. I have, I only have three chickens now. I'm not super happy about that. They keep disappearing. Their wings are clipped. I don't really know what happened. I don't know where they're going, but um, they, I, they kind of keep coming up missing. So I've got three. I did have six at the beginning of this year. January and I'm there slowly disappearing, but I will be getting new chicks like uh, chick days at the Orchlands. Um, and Orchlands is kind of our regional store, but um, like tractor supply has chick days also, but Orchlands, that's where I get mine from. And they, their chick days, I'll be getting them probably in December. And that way by June, they will be uh, laying eggs. So 
in just a few, you know, a month or two, I'll be getting new chickens and start the whole raising them again process. Cause I don't really ever need more than 10. I don't really need more than three or four. I just like having a lot of chickens. So, so ducks are really, really similar as far as like taking care of them and stuff. They're just, um, they're waterfowl instead of like dryland fowl. So they need ex- like constant access to water and they're super like, they're super messy. So they'll take their water, they'll dump it in their like they'll dump their food in their water they like they have a pool. We we bought like a baby pool from Walmart, and we made a ramp and stuff, so they would have access to it all the time. They go in a coop just like chickens. You can they'll put themselves to bed at night. They don't really roost. They like to stay on the ground. But yeah, it is very similar. If you're no, I don't, I don't. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever been. I don't know. I feel like if I had duck, it would ducks. It would just be for the sake of having ducks. It wouldn't be for anything production wise. And it would just be, for me, it would just be like another chore to do. So I probably should just stick to the chickens because I have a coop for the chickens, but I don't have anywhere for some ducks to live. Okay. Yeah. We, Josiah built me a duck coop. We got them um, because I love duck eggs is actually why we got them. And then we wound up with one male and one female. Oh. Yeah. Duck eggs. Have you ever had Oh, no. I didn't know if you were going to go on with the story. But no, I don't. I've never had a duck egg. I'm honestly, actually, I think I've had like duck duck fat fries at a restaurant so where they have fries are like fried in duck fat they make an over easy or like an over medium egg and then like put it on top of the fries and you are supposed to like dip the fries in it and that's probably the only exposure i've had to a duck egg that does not even sound remotely good (laughs) part i did not enjoy the egg part because i just really only like scrambled eggs however the fries are delicious fried in duck fat delicious so you know if you ever get a chance to try fries fried and duck fat. I would definitely tell you to take that, do that. Okay. I will give it a shot if I come across it. Duck eggs are like really similar to chicken eggs. They're a little bit bigger and they're a lot richer. So I really like them for breakfast food. It doesn't make really that big of a difference when you're like baking with them or anything, but um, they're a bit richer. Good to know. If I ever have a chance, I'll try one. Yeah. They're super great. We had um, my hometown in California. We had a really good friend who had like five or six geese and she had like 20 ducks. So we always had goose and duck eggs and they were super good. I'm definitely going to try it now. Is a goose egg much bigger than a duck egg, I'm assuming? Yeah. So, you know, let's say chicken eggs are like ping pong ball sized. Goose eggs are like closer to like oh my sized. I didn't know that. I They're mean, I'm not surprised, but I did not know that. Yeah. Like it makes sense when you think about it, but if you've never thought yeah, about it. Yeah. I had not thought about it, but that does make sense. I really want peacocks and my fiance he really wants um some Rhea. they're kind of like ostriches uh-huh. he wants some of those he like had some when they lived in south africa and he oh went. cool lived in south africa his parents managed a hunting ranch very cool there. very very cool. all right well let's hop right into it let's okay i want to talk about how we can be like better stewards of education in ranching to like everybody what like you seem like you have a pretty good handle on like being able to put concepts that are complicated or like people who know kind of know and like everyone else is kind of willfully ignorant about but you seem to be really good at putting it in terms that are like very easy to understand how do you think that we can do better and what is like do you think a good way to like kind of share like shepherd people into like being interested in education and ranching I think it's really important to remember that as ranchers and farmers, we are like being a rancher. That's just one segment of my life. Now, granted, it is a huge segment of my life. It takes up a lot of time. It defines a lot of me, but I'm also a mom and a wife and a runner 
and I love to travel and I enjoy live music and I'm a huge Kansas City Chiefs and K-State Wildcats fan. I love lots of different things. Like I am not just a rancher. I am a lot of different things. And so when it comes to engaging with people who want to learn more about their food, I think it's important to remember that we all have something in, like the chances of me having something in common with someone outside of ranching is pretty good. You know, I might have the fact that I'm a mom in common with them or that I'm a wife or that I love the chiefs or that I love to run or that I love to travel. Like I think where you make those connections is in the commonalities that we share in our lives. And when you, when you form a conversation or relationships based on those commonalities, then you start, you know, having, getting to know people and they know you and they get exposed to your life and agriculture by way of these other aspects of your life. So there's a lot of people that there are people on thought that follow me on Instagram because I, I do like running posts or because I have like mom stuff or like now that it's winter, I cook a lot more in the winter. So I'm posting recipes and there are people who come to my profile and follow me based on those other things, mom running, cooking recipes, that kind of thing. And then because they follow me based on those, they also get exposure to agriculture. Um, I think it's important that we not just talk about ag because nobody wants to, if the news, like if, if MSNBC was completely always talking about one thing all the time, you would turn it off. And the same goes for Fox news or ABC. You know, if, if a news channel only talks about one thing all the time, you're going to start to tune them out. So I kind of look at our, you know, our advocacy profiles or ranching profiles as a news thing. You know, my life is not just agriculture. I, I like to share other things about that. And that's how I connect with other people is that commonality. That was a really long answer. I'm sorry, but <laughs> just, it is what it is. <laughs> no, we're here to have the long answers. No, I love that. That's a different, kind of a different take than I've heard anybody really say before is that like for sure, anyone who's interested in educating anybody else about really anything is like, you have to find a connection and that's your way in. But that's like, it's, that's very vague. <laughs> so I like that you break it down and kind of recognize like, okay, yeah. So my connection might be like, oh, I love to cook or I love to run. And then these people find me yeah, that way. And, and I'm not some like visionary <laughs> that I don't want people to think that I'm not some like visionary who has it all figured out. I have been doing the advocacy thing since like 2008 or 2009. So I've been doing this for a long time and I have done a lot of trial and error and I have made a lot of mistakes and I have done things wrong and I can fully admit that. And I have just tried a lot of things and I have learned how to be more effective and how to create better relationships and engage people more. And that's one of the things I've realized is when I started blogging, my blog was just all agriculture. I'd post like four or five times a week and it was just ag. And a lot of the people following me and reading my blog were already in agriculture. So I wasn't reaching outside of the choir. I was just talking, you know, preaching to the choir. So it was important for me to learn how to engage with people outside of the ag circle because I don't need to help beef producers understand why they should be supportive of ranching and eating beef. I need, I want to connect with people who don't support ranching or don't understand it or, and, and are looking for more, infa more information on beef. Those are the people I'm trying to reach and help them understand more about their food. So it's taken me a lot of mistakes to get to where I am, about 12 years worth. <laughs> so mentioning 
those mistakes, what are some things that like someone else who's interested in sharing the knowledge that they have, what is, what are some things that maybe they should avoid doing? If you've already made the mistakes, then maybe you can help someone else not make them. One of the big mistakes I made when I first got started was not taking the time to think about who my audience was. So I just, I started my blog and being an advocate because I love to write. And I, the blog started because there was a a journalist with the K-State Collegian who was, uh, which is the school newspaper where I went to college at Kansas State University. And this journalist was writing op-eds that were saying that milk caused ear infections in little kids and that it caused osteoporosis and the animal agriculture was bad. And just this whole series of articles this person was writing and they were completely wrong and not scientifically based. And I was frustrated. And so finally I got fed up and I wrote a letter to the editor, but I didn't like a fool. I didn't pay attention to the, submission guidelines and it was like 500 words and it was way too long and they wouldn't print it. And so I was trying to figure out what to do. And I contacted an industry, a trade publication journalist. His name is Chuck Jolly. He used to work for Drovers, but I contacted him and said, Hey, what do I do? You know, I wrote this. I'm frustrated with the way the newspaper is portraying agriculture. What can I do? And he said, well, go ahead and send it to me and I'll take a look at it. And then he said, maybe I can give you some advice. And I sent it to him and he actually published it and it's on he published it on Drovers like the next week. And at that point I decided I, I want to do this. This is, I can, I'm decent at writing and I want to share agriculture stories. So I started my blog, but before, you know, before I started blog, writing the blog post, I just thought about what I wanted to write about in agriculture. I didn't think about how I would reach people who wanted to learn about agriculture. So I was just writing about things that were near and dear to my heart. I wasn't reaching who I needed to reach. Um, so like several years in, five years in or six years in, I figured out, hey, I need to be writing blog posts that are targeted at the people who I who actually need to know this stuff. So if I'm trying to help people understand where their food comes from, I need to be targeting moms that live in cities or I need to be targeting a, a millennial who is really concerned about animal welfare or you know, a millennial that's really concerned about nutrition. So I started changing my writing style and the target of my post to fit that audience. So to this day, I don't write any blog post that is not targeted at that audience. And my Facebook page is targeted at that audience. So I, I put other things in there on my Facebook page and my blog about motherhood and running and rodeo and like there's other things in it, but my blog and my Facebook page are not targeted at people who are in the ranching community already. Those, they are specifically for the sole purpose of helping people learn where their food comes from. So I think I found your Instagram. I think Logan might've shared a post of yours um, or maybe the girls eat beef page on Instagram, shared a post of yours or maybe okay. both. It's really possible. <laughs> and I, and I saw it and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And I kind of like, I didn't follow it. I just like read it. I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then I'm not even joking for like two weeks after that, you popped up oh. on my explore page every single <laughs> Sorry. day. Sorry. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, it's a sign. Got a follower. Got to check it well, out. Well, <laughs> I'm glad that you did. Me too. It's interesting because I'm like, I fit a lot of the profile that you're describing. I'm a millennial. I am concerned about like where my food comes from. I'm just in, I just have a little bit of a ranching background. So I'm like kind of in the middle of like the audience you're trying to reach and yeah. reaching to the choir. Well, it's good that I'm glad that you ran across um, my profile and that we get the chat today. I, I love that. Yeah, me too. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about 
the post that you wrote about debunking the myths about raising yeah, yeah. Um, cattle. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Do you, if you, you have like a specific question and I can go from there maybe. One of the things that you specifically mentioned is that like organic beef is better, but a lot of people don't really know that like organic really only means that they organic, like that organic mean is like referring to the way that the animal was raised. It doesn't actually like dictate health mm -hmm. or anything like that. Can you kind of explain like why maybe that myth could potentially be like harmful or dangerous? Well, the myth of organic beef or the organic beef versus conventional beef kind of dichotomy, that's not even the right the word, but maybe back and forth is that, you know, that's a common misconception that organic anything is better for you. But organic, like you said, organic really only refers to the way that animal or that food was raised. It's not indicative of the nutrition or the health of a product. So like 150 grams, like a three ounce serving of Conventional beef is 150 calories, roughly, and a three-ounce serving of organic beef is roughly 150 calories, and they're both super high in zinc, iron, protein, and like seven other essential vitamins and nutrients. So organic just really can, in the beef world, just really refers to like mostly what that animal ate and how it was raised. So it doesn't have anything to do with the health. And I think that it's really important that people know that because there's a lot of policy that gets, you know, public policy or influence again to policymakers that tries to regulate the way that food is raised. And there's a lot of people that if, if, if for some reason we had to go all organic beef, like there's a lot of people in the United States who would no longer be able to afford to eat beef. And I think it's important that we, we are cognizant of the fact that in the agriculture industry, we have a wide range, wide range of consumers and we need to be able to provide enough choices for all the consumers from all demographic backgrounds, from all income backgrounds. And if someone wants like seven, like $8 ground beef that was, that's organic and grass finished, absolutely. We can provide that product for them and they will love it. But we also need to be able to pr provide three or $4 ground beef to a family who is maybe at a lower income scale or if, you know, and then there's the product, the group of people who doesn't really care that much about how their food is raised. They just want something that is good for their family and that they can afford it. So it's just really important that we not influence the way food is produced so much that it prevents people from having access to safe, healthy food. And I think that that's really important that I don't care if people want to or eat organic beef or conventional beef, but you don't have to throw the other one under the bus just because it doesn't suit you or, you know, this other person. I don't mean you specifically. Uh, right. But, you know, just because right. <laughs> organic beef isn't what I purchased doesn't mean that I discourage other people from purchasing it. Go ahead. That's great. I just, I, we don't. So that's just the way it works. If it's cheaper than the other, if it's cheaper than conventional, we'll probably buy it. But I just think it's important that we not shove other beef producers or other ag producers underneath the bus just because they do something differently than we do. So when we're referring to organic, does that mean that like no antibiotics are used? Does it mean no medicines at all are used? What exactly? That's a really good question. So in terms of organic beef, according to the USDA, an, an animal that has been raised for organic beef consumption was not treated with the antibiotics and it was not treated with any added growth hormones um, and there were not any, there's some feed ingredients that it wasn't given. Now that also, that doesn't mean that the animal, if it gets sick, that the farmer or rancher just lets it get sick and doesn't take care of it. If an animal gets sick, that farmer or rancher is going to treat it with an antibiotic 
to keep it, you know, to keep it safe. And they'll just move that animal to a different supply chain. So that animal will be taken care of and, you know, humanely cared for and fed, but it just won't go into that organic food supply. And, and treating the animal with antibiotics does not harm the, the, the meat. It doesn't make it unsafe. It's just, you know, if people are going to purchase organic beef, they want to know that it was done according to the guidelines. So organic beef is not given, that animal is not given antibiotics and it's not given any added growth hormones. And it's given a hundred percent organic feed, I believe. So I, I don't, I think those are the three main components is a hundred percent organic feed, no hormones and no antibiotics. It's, I just want people to eat beef and be confident in it. So if they're confident in organic beef, then eat, eat organic beef because that's still supporting an organic beef producer. If they don't, if they don't mind um, an animal not being held to organic standards, then eat the conventional beef because that supports a conventional beef producer. So I just want people to eat beef. <laughs> All right. So, okay. I'm like always super curious. Why are you so passionate about people eating beef? Is it just because you're a producer? Is it because like you have, it's, been kind of well, I love it. It tastes or... really good. So that's why <laughs> I mean, I just want people, I mean, I want people to trust where their food comes from. So I encourage other people to eat. I encourage people to eat pork and eat corn and potatoes. And, and I just, my overarching goal is I want people to just be confident in the food that they're eating. I don't want people to be afraid of their food. I mean, that's a sad state to live in, to be afraid of your food. So uh, that's the big goal is I just don't want to see agriculture attacked. I want people to be confident in the food that they're eating. And if they want to eat beef, I totally support that because I think beef tastes delicious. And I also happen to raise it. So I, I'm, I mean, I'm going to promote what I raise, but I also, my, my husband is employed in the pork industry and I promote pork and I, I make a mean fried chicken. And so I want people to eat chicken. I just, again, the overarching thing is that I want people to feel confident in the, the food that they're eating and that they don't have to worry about its safety. You can't see me, but I'm nodding my head. I do that like at least once an episode. I'm like totally nodding my head. In a oh, I use my hands a lot when I speak and I've been it. doing that the whole time. And you can't see that either. <laughs> so no worries. It works out. <laughs> okay. So there is another point in your post that I was interested in talking about a little bit because it's as someone who grew up in California, but very, very close to Nevada. It's actually an argument. Well, argue discussion, I guess is a better word discussion. I've heard a lot. And so it's like the myth that pastures for cattle could be used for growing human. Food. Yeah, that is a big myth, which is, it's something that really needs to be get some attention called to it. Cause it's not, it's quite often you see the, someone say, well, we should just convert that into cropland for human food and do that. And I mean, the reason that we, that so many of these pastures are used for grazing cattle and some of them are used for like sheep too. But the reason they're used for livestock is because you can't grow crops on them. And, and I always like to use the example, I used to live in the Flint Hills for like seven or eight years. And that's part of the last tall grass prairie in the United States, but it's in the kind of the heart of Kansas. And it's gorgeous. It's millions and millions of acres of, of rolling prairie grasses. And it's beautiful. And like two or three inches or four inches below the, the soil, it's just like rock. And you can't grow. I mean, you couldn't plant a, a carrot field there. You know, I mean, you have a hard time getting any carrots out of it. It'd be rocky carrots and you can't. And so it's so hilly that you're not going to be able to get farm equipment up and down. And, and so it's just, it's not suitable for growing 
vegetables or fruits or something like that but you can put cows on it and they can eat all that gorgeous grass and turn it into beef and you get a really dense protein source that's nutritious so and it's not just in the flint hills you know i have a good friend who is from northern nevada and like her cows her family sends the cows up into the mountains for the summer and then for the summer they go and gather the cows and the mm -hmm. cows come down off the mountain like, I don't know it. I don't know how to grow vegetables or fruits on the side of the mountain. I mean, I have a significant garden most years and I, I don't think I could do it on the side of a mountain. So I think it's a real testament to farmers and ranchers that they are able to use these lands that aren't suitable for other food production, but they're able to be ad adapt and be flexible and, and figure out ways to raise livestock on them. And I, I think that's something that I'm, I'm really proud of our industry for doing that. Yeah, just... Um... Out of curiosity, did your friend live like um, near Fernley or do you her know? family? Oh my gosh, why can I not think of this? Mountain City. Now I need to look. I need to know where that is. I went to college in northern Nevada. Now, whenever anyone mentions it, I'm always really curious about like where. Well, she either. Okay, I, I'm really sorry, Jesse, oh. if you're listening to this. I'm so sorry. So I think they live in El, like her family's ranch is in Elko, but they went, she like went to school in Mountain City, which is, is a way from out like so it's okay. not just down the road so, it's it's several it's it might be like 70 miles or something like that so i'm pretty sure his, her family either yeah. lived in mountain city okay. and with a school in elko or they live in elko and with school in mountain city one of the two and but yeah the ranch is it's in northern nevada and they send their cows up in the mountains for the summer and then they bring them home and yeah okay so looking at a map they probably went to school in elko in, to school in elko because mountain city looks like oh, it's okay. kind of an un incorporated See, I, I feel really bad because she's uh, I, sh I should have known that and i had probably i did know that several years ago but i had just forgotten and talked about it but um don't feel bad about it i really appreciate no one that has to thank know. you <laughs> also something really interesting that's in um that post i keep wanting to say i don't article. care what you call it okay so in that uh, article and then sprinkled in like various other posts throughout your blog, you talk a whole lot about like how technology has been helpful in like updating like the way you ranch or the way you parent, which is really cool because I know there's a lot of like old school farmers or ranchers who are really reluctant to embrace technology. Can you kind of talk a little bit about like some of the ways in which modern technology has been really helpful? Well, this is at top of mind because we're going to put embryos in our, in our recip cows tomorrow. But I mean, technology has brought us so far that we can, I don't know exactly when embryo transfer started in the beef industry, but like I can flush a cow and get like breed a cow and flush her and get embryos from her and put them in another cow and get a calf out of it. Like that's crazy that we can do that. That is a, the bovine version of a surrogate mother. And it just is crazy to me that we can do that. And we do that so that we can, I don't know what the right word is, but we can get more genetics propagate. I don't know if that's the right word, but anyway, so that we can get prolific genetics from one line without having to have, you know, 10 cows that are, you know, that are full sisters, but I can have one cow and get several embryos from her and multiply her genetics much more quickly by using recipient cows than I could just her having one calf every year. And that's just one example of technology. And, and there's a lot of people to do that. Um, but that's one example of technology that really helps us do better in the beef industry. Um, my husband is an he's a PhD animal nutritionist and the finite nature of our cattle's rations is just 
crazy. You know, we can tweak it. We can add a little of this, a little of that and, and help our cows really get everything out of the feed that they need to make sure that they're getting the right amount of protein and the right, you know, the right amount of carbs and, you know, they have enough energy to raise their calves. And, you know, at some point that kind of education and technology was developed and I just can't, I can't get over like how far we've come. And that, those are just two very, you know, small technological and, and kind of scientific advancements, but wowie what reproductive technology and nutrition science have done for the beef industry in the past 20 years is just amazing. So you said your husband is a, oh my gosh, you just said it and I already don't remember exactly what you said. Can you explain? So he has a PhD in uh, swine nutrition. Uh, So he went to school for a real long time and got, got a PhD in how to feed pigs really scientifically. And also his, his PhD also focused on reproductive technologies and pigs. So now he is, uh, he leads the, that's a team in here in the United States for a Canadian wine company that they help producers with technological feeders, like electronic pig feeders to make sure that the pigs get as much feed as they need per animal and in these big group pens. And then he also does, you know, he does consulting for nutrition and he helps them with some of their reproductive kind of challenges as well. So he, he does a lot with pigs. He loves it. That is so cool. I mean, I would certainly hope so. That's all. Yes, that's very true. One time we you were, like. somebody asked him what, where he, uh, he'll, he'll never listen to he. I'll have to make him listen to this and we'll see what he does, says. But he, somebody asked him what he does and he said, I feed pigs and I love it. So I can kind of make that joke with him every once in a while that I, he feeds pigs and he loves it. He might not like that. I told you that, but that's okay. <laughs> that's funny. That's really, really cool. Cause I always like, I mean, a lot of people who are not involved or educated about ranching or about agriculture, just kind of like have this idea of what it looks like. And even, you know, myself, I've been fairly ignorant about a lot of the technology that exists and it's crazy 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 the stuff that exists to assist like farmers and ranchers and everybody else in the agriculture industry do well and uh, yeah I mean there's just so better, much I guess like, you could, like I've been doing this for five years this ranching and and before that I was you know I, ha- I have an animal science degree and I learned a lot and I've been able to apply what I learned onto the ranch but there's still just so much real world ranching information and knowledge and experience that I don't have and you know, every day is an opportunity to learn more about it and get better. And hopefully five years from now, I know way more than I know now. I don't ever want to stop learning or improving. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's a very learning, or it's a very humbling learning experience. That is a great way to describe it. It really is. (laughs) Cows don't care what you learned in school. They, they care that you feed them and that you take care of them and that they have their babies by their side. So, um, while I, I mean, I don't regret my education, I've learned a ton just on the ranch working with the cows. And I think that it's, uh, that real world on the ranch application and education is, is priceless. So Josiah's dad, who's, um, was a farmer growing up, his family had, um, a farm growing up and then he's been ranching either beef or um, managing hunting ranches pretty much his whole adult life. He it is uh, the, he can just like look at something, like do the math and immediately know like exactly how much oh my. how many bags of cement he'll need to buy. And 
And I'm still just like, I can't even imagine like what this is going to look like when it's done. He on the ranch, he like currently manages. He's been there for almost six ish years, maybe five years. He's got like a whole map and like they're in Southwest Texas. So it's like super, super dry. And, um, he's got like a map of like, we're all like the lakes and stuff or the ponds are. And he can tell you if he gets like a half inch of like rain in the rain oh gauge, how many gallons of that water. That sounds like he's got. really, it's really good at mental math. And yeah, I am really, really not. I have, to, I, there's a reason that I write for a living. <laughs> No, yeah, me too. Well, I don't write yeah, for a living. I, there's a reason I don't my do husband laughs at me and I'm like, hey, I can still do calculus if I have a calculator. From because I remember I remember the things I learned. But <laughs> if you want me to multiply like 245 times 1,672, I'm gonna have to get a calculator or a piece of paper because it's not gonna happen in my head. Listen, why waste all the effort of trying to make it happen in your head? Thank you. I agree. I totally agree with you. We are on the same page here. <laughs> His dad laughs at me. I've said that. I'm like, well, why would I need to know that off the top of my head if I literally have a calculator with me everywhere I go? And I remember in like elementary school teachers and stuff being like, well, you're not going to have a calculator. You need to know how to do it. Yeah, because now like, I do have a calculator with me almost, almost all the time. Every single one of them. I'm like, I did not need yeah. to memorize. Although I am, well, I still can do that. I can do that kind of multiplication in my head. Okay. Let's not, let's give me a little credit. I can do the, my 12 times 12 multiplication table. However, I am hoping to get an Apple watch for Christmas so that I can run without my phone and still listen to podcasts and music. And so then I won't have a calculator with me all the time at, at that point. Oh, no, but you can ask Siri to do it for you. You can ask Siri to do like anything. You can no. ask her to turn your flashlight on. I did not know that. I did didn't know that. I know that. A few weeks ago. Try when we get off to tell Siri, <laughs> ask Siri to turn your flashlight on. It's really cool. Josiah's, Josiah's parents figured that out. They like couldn't figure out where to um, That's turn really it on funny. on their phones. So they just asked Siri to do it. That's it's hilarious. I love that. Thank you to Siri. But yeah, I, so I got an Apple watch maybe a year and a half ago. Well, love it. It I've been holding out because I hate, I don't, I'm kind of anti-stuff, anti-clutter. I don't like to have a lot of things. And like, I still have my iPod and I hate to get rid of it because I'm like, I had to wait for that for a long time. But I'm afraid if I get an Apple Watch, then it will become obsolete, like the iPod. And then I'll just have this piece of junk sitting around and I won't use it. Um, and I've been trying, I try not to like get all the new gadgets and just, I just don't like to collect things. I'd rather use my money to go rodeo or spend it on my horses or something like that. But I do like the idea of being able to run and not have to have like my phone on my armband or in the waistband of my, my leggings or something and just be able to have it on my wrist. And I really like that, the prospect of that. So I'm holding out, but I, I've held out for a long time, but I did ask for the Apple watch three, which is by far not the newest one. It's way cheaper. I asked for that for Christmas, so we'll see how that goes. I'll have to touch base with you again in a month. Yes. So I'm pretty sure that's the one. I think that's the one that I have. I either have the three or I have the four. It was the new one when when I got it a year and a half ago. Um, but every single, like, update's been seamless. And I, like, I held out because I thought it was so stupid. I was like, why would I want one of those? I was like, I can't even text from it. So, like, there's no point, which you can use, use voice to text. It was actually really great. Um but I was like, it's so stupid. And then I was gifted one for my birthday. And I love it. I'm like, <laughs> how did I live so long with that well, one? See, and I, everybody that I talk to tells me, oh, you, I love it. I love it. I love it. And I just, I don't know. We'll see. 
If I get one, I'll probably use it all the time and I'll get a bunch of bands and I'll interchange the bands because I'll have to have some tooled leather bands, but we'll see. So one of my super good friends does leather working and she made me a custom one. It is so mm. pretty. I'm like, I just wish see, I never now had I'm, to take it Now out. I'm really hoping I get one for Christmas. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you do. <laughs> I got you all excited. <laughs> Um, okay, is there before I hop into my last couple of um, questions, is there anything else you want to I can to think of really? Uh, no, I can't think of anything specifically that I'm like, oh shoot, we definitely need to talk about that. So if someone was really, really interested in becoming an educator and like educating people like similar to the way that you do like with social media and like making those connections, what is like the first piece of advice you would give them if someone came to you and said, Hey, how can I of advocating this thing? Oh, well, my very first yes. thing would be that the um, knowing your audience that I said earlier, because like you got to know your audience and you got to write for your audience. After that, I would say stick to your passion, which is kind of the same as stay in your lane. I don't if you notice on my platforms, like I don't blog about wheat farming or soybean farming or anything like that or growing lettuce or something. I might share somebody else's posts or videos about that, but I don't specifically pair, share information about that because I'm not a farmer. I don't know. I know a minuscule amount about corn farming because we raise, we do 12 acres of corn that we cut for chop for silage and that's it. So I really, I stick to my lane of parenting a toddler, running, ranching with, you know, having cows, rodeo, that kind of stuff. I stick to what I know. You will very rarely catch me, if ever, talking about raising chickens. And and not because I don't support that, but just I don't know very much about raising chickens. So I would rather elevate the voice of someone who is really good at that and knows way more about that than I do, rather than having to know all the things about everything. So my advice is know your audience, share your passion, and stay in your lane. I like it. I That's actually something I was like thinking about as I'm like kind of like reading through your stuff and I'm like it all ties like back and it's like I don't want to say it's narrow in scope but like I know who you are and I know like like what types of things like you're interested in like the things you talk about and so no, but I there's not a to, whole lot I try of, to like, stick to what I know outside of I have enough people that <laughs> there's enough people that get tired of hearing me talk as it is I don't need to give them more <laughs> more chances to be tired of me <laughs> out of everything you've ever done in your oh, whole my, entire life, my whole life Oof, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I would say in my whole life, not just in advocacy, but my whole life, the, the most meaningful thing that I've done with my life so far is, um, so I have a four-year-old who knows that Jesus loves her and she knows how to pray and she will randomly will be in the car or something like that and she will say, um, she'll say something about Jesus. She'll say something to the effect of like, we have to say our prayers because Jesus needs to hear us or something like that. And, and it doesn't always make perfect sense because she gets things out of context, but just the fact that, um, that she, she knows about, you know, we're laying the foundation for her to be a Christian. And that's really, that was really important to me. And so that's the thing that I'm most proud of. I really, I like that. That reminds me of um, something that, one of my friend's daughters said she's uh, six or maybe seven. She's the oldest of four. And we were, when we were back home visiting, we saw them and we were sitting in their living room. She's going to go help tuck in her youngest sister into bed. And she goes, 
come on, we got to go. That's great. We got to go pray. We got to go tell Jesus that we love him. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is so cute. Yeah, it is. And it's, they are kind of like little sponges. Like you don't realize that they're picking stuff up. And then, you know, you think, oh, I'm, you know, we're saying our prayers. And because sometimes it's a fight with her to get her to say her prayers instead of like jumping into bed or she doesn't want to listen or something because she's a kid. It means something to them. They, they actually hear it. You know, she wants me to read her um, or to sing her how great thou art before we go to bed very often because I have sang that to her since she was a newborn and it's just amazing what they um what they soak up and what they remember yeah definitely uh so and um that's something we didn't really touch on at all in this episode is kind of your faith do you think that it shapes the way you like what you decided to do or you uh how you treat your animals i mean it clearly shapes you know your family life does it i mean it should it should um i i don't know that it shapes how (laughs) i care for my animals i mean i believe farmers and ranchers we all inherently want to do the very best we can for our animals and take care of them and and i think that's just part of being a caretaker i don't necessarily think that's part of it's uh let me rephrase this i think that you can be a really great caretaker for your livestock and not be a Christian. But I am a Christian and I like to think that I take really good care of my livestock. So those two are intertwined, but I don't think that they're exclusive of each or that they are um, mutually exclusive, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, But I mean, yes, it does. My faith drives many, many, many different areas of my life. And so that obviously we, you know, it, is in our, the way we ranch and it's in the way we have our run our, run our family and our business and our daily decisions. So yeah, that's a big part of our life. But again, I think that you can be a really great rancher and farmer and take really great care of your livestock without being Christian. Dang, I was not, I was totally nodding again. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. If someone wants to follow along on your ranching journey or check out the post so i am on instagram at brandy buzzard brandy with an i and buzzard like the bird the blog is www.buzzardsbeat.com and that is also the facebook page facebook.com backslash buzzardsbeat so if you type in the word buzzard i'm pretty easy to find on most platforms well, thank you so much for coming on. Even yeah, well, like I, be, I so much appreciate you letting me come on, um, <laughs> and I enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to connect with me on social media. It's at Ranch Collective Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes as soon as they're released. See you next week.